Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, I've cooked up something amazing with my friend Natalie Y. Beavers, founder of Angels of Epilepsy, and it's all yours for free now. Go to my website at uninvisiblepod.com and download your free ebook called Hacking Healthcare, a resource guide Natalie and I have compiled using not only our experiences in the healthcare system, but also with the assistance of other patient leaders who have added their two cents. From a message of empowerment to notes on navigating health insurance and your doctor's visit, this is an invaluable guide intended to make healthcare more approachable and to give you the tools you need to succeed. This resource has been incredibly eye-opening and important to us, and we hope that with it, you will see real results and improve your experience in the system. Once more, that's a free download of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. Go check it out, guys. Thank you. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with Shayla Swint. Shayla lives with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. We've talked about it on the show before, but I'm excited to have her on to talk about her experience. And Shayla, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Absolutely. So I love to start at the beginning of these stories of diagnosis and illness. Can you tell us when and how you first realized that you were sick and how you've managed your health since then? Okay, so I think my first memory where I knew something just was different or wasn't right, um, I was in gymnastics and I was in cheerleading. And for people who are familiar with EDS, it's um, basically a connective tissue disorder. So it affects the joints and things of that nature. So I just remember I would always get these little petty injuries, petty injuries. But I also remember that all my gym coaches would tell my mom and dad, oh my gosh, she is so flexible. Like she is amazing. She can do anything we ask her to do there's no problem um she's more flexible than all the other children and so I would say for about two years it was fine but then I can remember personally I'm like my body just hurts and I don't know I was really like seven or eight so I wasn't sure if that was normal or not and I honestly didn't say anything to anybody because none of my other friends were saying their body hurts or anything of that nature this is such and a common so, narrative we hear that like people right. are not talking about it because no one else yes. is and, yeah yeah so I just I had no clue I had no idea and so I, I know I can remember waking up like oh this hurts that hurts I remember when I was doing all these amazing stretches and being flexible that I felt a lot of discomfort but then again nobody else was saying that it hurt and as a child hearing oh she's so good it just it kind of made me feel good in a way so I didn't say much so my mom she eventually pulled me because she just didn't like all the petty injuries and um 
things of that nature. But I do remember at 13, that was the age I was playing with my brother in the house, what we're not supposed to be doing. And um, <laughs> we were doing flips <laughs> off of the couch. So I did a flip off of the couch. And when I landed, my shoulder completely came out, like mm. it was dislocated completely. So long story short, we ended up going to um, Cho. I'm from Atlanta. So um, Children's Orthopedics of Atlanta. And that's where I got a diagnosis kind of from Dr. Bush, he kind of suspected something was wrong because he said she's just too flexible and her limbs are just, the range is um, extraordinary. And so that was the first time where we had heard what Ehlers-Danlos was. But of course he couldn't give me a, a diagnosis. From him, it was just suspicion. That's so interesting because, you know, often when I hear these stories about EBS, there's a huge span of time between onset of symptoms and diagnosis, which obviously you had several years there from being seven or eight to being 13 and dislocating your shoulder. But that one of the first doctors who you saw had an early suspicion that this was kind of miraculous. It's almost like a lucky thing that you had an injury that required you to see an orthopedist because he was familiar. It is, it is. And of course, we had never heard of it. So, you know, my mom started doing all this research and, you know, and then we kind of saw that it was hereditary. But, you know, like you said, it's years before you get a diagnosis. And I'm sure I will get into my official diagnosis. But um, it was just, it it was a long journey. Absolutely. So what happened then? I mean, I know there's no such thing. We talked to Laura Bloom um, last year on the show, um, who runs the Ehlers-Danlos Society. And she told us, you know, there's no such thing as like an Ehlers-Danlos specialist, right? I know that there are doctors who are familiar with it, but because there's no such doctor that you can actually seek out, how did you end up finding a practitioner who could treat you and getting a diagnosis? So, okay, so that was 13. So let's say between 13 and 18, I had like multiple surgeries, knee surgeries, shoulder surgeries. And so during all this time, it was still just going back and forth to Dr. Bush. I actually stayed with him through child to 21 because that's when you age out of peds. And so um, I didn't get an official diagnosis from until I was, what am I, 25? Until I was 23. So 23 years old. Wow, so it took 10 years. Yes. And so like you said, there's really and even yet there wasn't like a test that they took. So I went to um, Emory Genetics. And that's where I saw a specialist. And he said, I can, I I believe it's um, Ehlers-Danlos hypermobility, but you know, there's no blood test or anything that we can run or give you. But from my opinion, what I've seen from other people, I can say that that's what I believe that it is. Wow. So what was it like getting that diagnosis for you? Was it validating or did it feel a bit like you'd have the rug pulled out from under you? Oh, it was very validating. I I cried, you know, once I got home and back to the car because it was just years of people saying, oh, there's nothing wrong with you. You're fine. And then um, I went to a rheumatologist and she told me, well, black people, they don't get EDS. So (laughs) yes, (laughs) yes. So that, that was something that really, really, that was, that was hard because, you know, Mm -hmm. I know what I felt and how I wake up every day in some kind of chronic pain. This is racism and gaslighting in a a meal together from this person. That's pretty horrible. (laughs) Right. Yes. And it just wasn't 
like she didn't even give me a chance to explain who I was and my story. She came in and said, yes, I um, reviewed your chart and your history. And I don't think it's EDS and I don't think it's anything with pain. Honestly, she said, I just feel like you should go see a therapist because. Right. So she you also weren't in pain. Fantastic. Yeah. Yes. Right. Exactly. So she said, I feel like you should just seek therapy and, um, you know, just try to get a hold on what's going on, you know, mentally. And so mm-hmm. with that, I can tell you, I shut down and I was just like, I'm not yeah. going back to any appointments. I'm not going back to any doctors. Um, yeah. I'll just try to manage my pain best I can. And you wonder where a, a mistrust of the medical system comes from when yes. anyone experiences this kind yes. of illness. But like when this is something that's so common in the black community too, to, you know, doctors not believe your pain um, and, is. and really disenfranchise you. Um, right. Immediately. Yeah. And not even give me a chance to tell my story and what I go through every day like that. I've never had an experience. That was like one of the worst appointments. I've never had a doctor. And I say, well, why are you here? And can you, you know, tell me a little about what's going on? She just had this preconceived notion. Black people don't get it. So I need to get on to the next appointment for the day. And so that was about, I would say about two years before I went to Emory and um, the doctor told me, yeah, it's definitely a um, hypermobility EDS. Um, I can, I can see it all over. So it was, like you said, it was, it was very validating because I know, like I wasn't, it wasn't in my head. I know. Absolutely. So what about, in terms of maintaining your health, like you've got this diagnosis, you know that you have a connective tissue disorder, you've had tons of surgeries. How are you, yeah, how are you maintaining your body's health knowing that you have this diagnosis that you're going to have to work with for the rest of your life? So I, um, I, first thing I do try to keep my mental state as stable as possible and I do have a therapist that I um, go to and meet with because I feel like mental health is really something important with a chronic illness because yeah. this is gonna, it's going to be here forever. It's chronic. It's was not going away. that was offered to you right away as well or was that something that you sought individually? Because like it's one of those things that like we, we know right. because we're chronically ill about the mind-body connection but right often because of holdups with health insurance or doctors who don't get the, the sort of holistic point of view, um, mm-hmm. it takes us as patients saying, hey, I'm going to need to talk to a therapist because this is life-changing, right? So right. was that something that you did yourself or was it something that someone suggested? So um, I would say it was something my mom suggested it, but nobody in the healthcare suggested it. So, you know, let's go back to 13 and then that gap mm-hmm. where I'm just having all these surgeries. And so you know, that's school age. I'm missing school all the time. And people are like, Shayla, what's wrong with you? You're always having surgery. Da, 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 da. And so my mom, she noticed, and I had to really thank her for that. She realized that, okay, this is going to be something chronic for her. And that, let me do something now. So she's able to cope with this. And so she put me in therapy. And at first oh, I was a little, that's yes, awesome. <laughs> I know it was. She put me in therapy And the therapist was great. I'm with her to this day. And so that kind of, um, it really helped me to be able to cope. Like I said, I feel like that's most important for me is just making sure my my mind and, you know, I'm not going against myself because it's easy to just get down on yourself and just be like, you know, why me? Why do I have to go through this? So that that's one of the main things. Another thing is, so I do have my, um, I like to say maintenance, maintenance meds, you know, just pain medication and um, other medications I'm on with core, mo- core morbid um, 
Oh, I'm drawing a blank. No, yeah, comorbid conditions. Yes, conditions. <laughs> my maintenance miss. I tried to do my own kind of um, physical therapy at home and um, low impact workouts just to kind of build and kind of help the muscle tissue. But, you know, some people are like, you just need to work out and you'll be fine. But for me, it doesn't take my pain away. Nothing takes my pain away. Even if when I was in physical therapy for months, it wasn't taking my pain away. It was just making it a more manageable level to, so I can get out of bed, you know, and do what I need to do every day. So that's another thing that I do. And I'm, I'm also trying to see if I want to make the transition to being vegan because I heard that can help with chronic pain and inflammation in the body. So I've been kind of researching that and trying to um, cut meat out here and there, like um, a day here and a day there, just to see how I feel and things of that nature. Um, what else do I do? Uh, I mean, it sounds like it's a very stop. holistic approach. Aside from those maintenance meds, this is a holistic approach to your health. Yes, that's exactly what it is. And that's kind of the, the area I want to go in, the way I want to go. I'm not going to sit here and down anybody who takes medication because, like I said, I have mine. And if I have to take a pain pill to get through my day, I'm going to do it. So, um, but I definitely have been researching and looking at other holistic ways to, you know, cope and see what helps me. Yeah, that's awesome. So, I mean, it sounds like your mom was an advocate for you pretty early on, especially with helping you with the mental health side of yes. this diagnosis. So how has that impacted your relationship? You know, getting this kind of lifelong, life-changing diagnosis, um, your mom seeing that the entire time you were growing up um, and acting mm-hmm. as a caregiver for you in many ways. Yes. How has that changed your relationship with her? Has it given you an opportunity to be closer in some ways? Yes, we are, we're, we've drawn very close because, you know, with the surgeries and stuff, she's, you know, she's going at home, taking off work and, you know, make, you know, being the caretaker and giver. Um, but she also suffers. She's a chronic migraine sufferer. So for her, she kind of understands being in that state of chronic pain. But now that I'm older and I realize, wow, so mommy, you were in chronic pain, but you were here being my caregiver. I just have a whole new respect and, you know, see my mom in a different light. She's mm. definitely my advocate. You know, I'm just to the point now at 25 where I can go to doctor's appointments and say, well, this is what's wrong with me. And this is what I'm feeling and experiencing every day, especially after that appointment with the other doctor, I just kind of shut down and I didn't want to talk to anybody. So, and that was the first time that my mom missed an appointment because she had a work. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. of course that would happen the time that she's not there, but um, she's definitely, it has definitely brought us closer. And we just, we both understand each other because she knows what it's like every day to wake up in some sort of pain as do I and so we just people call us like twins because we can you know basically read each other's minds but she is definitely my person that's so lovely I I mean this is again this is a common story we hear I mean for the most part especially when you're looking at a diagnosis that starts when you're a kid when you're in pediatrics, like Mm -hmm. patients and their families getting closer because of it. And that's kind of a beautiful thing. Like that's where it's that blessing in disguise, especially because your mom could literally understand chronic pain. Yes. Yes. And I think that's what makes it so special and so unique is because Mm -hmm. she truly understands. Yeah. So what is a typical day looking like for you? How are you balancing the demands of work and life as you work around your body's needs and mitigating potential uh, symptoms? 
Right. So I would definitely say um, it's, it's a struggle. It really is. So I'm a recent college, college grad. I graduated back in May. So, Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. So that was a, definitely a challenge in itself, um, you know, finishing school. So transitioning into, you know, work life, it's just making sure that I'm not overdoing it and learning how to say, Shayla, you're going to have to take a day. And if you don't take a day, you're going to be forced to take five days. So um, it's important. And I'm learning, you know, I have to listen to my body very, very early on because I know how to, I've been that person to just push, 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 push. And then I have to go to the hospital to get an IV drip for pain management and, you know, everything else because I haven't listened. So definitely I try to, you know, make sure that I'm doing what I can before my body forces me to sit down. Yeah. Are you finding that employers are open to your needs and your potential adjustments? Like, are you being open with them about your diagnosis? So I, so I will, I do have a um, instance. I was worked at T-Mobile. So that's past tense. And I really enjoyed working at that job. I really did, but I needed, um, I asked them if I could have a stool, you know, on the Store, like if I'm behind the counter or even when we don't have uh, customers in the store, if I could work there and, you know, if I could have a, a, count, uh, a stool to sit down on, you know, so I don't get completely exhausted or fatigued. And I didn't think it would be an issue because I go on AT&T, I go on Sprint, you know, I go on Verizon and their employees, they always have stools behind the counter. So they told me, um, well, that's not really the look we're going for in our store. So, you know, if you want, if you need to just take more breaks, you can take more breaks and make sure you clock out. And so I just really didn't understand why a stool and me still doing my job and still performing why that would be an issue especially when it's for health reasons I'm not sitting down because I just you know don't want to stand up if I could stand up for my whole shift then I would do it and be fine but especially with my knee surgeries and everything sometimes I just I have to sit down and that way I just don't feel that fatigue so that was one employer where I can definitely say they were not supportive mm. at all and I, i'm gonna really, i'm gonna I call disability discrimination on them right there actually, yeah I, and, you know my mom told me to she told me to and i'm just like you know what i don't even i don't even don't worry about it because it, it just it just made me upset yeah. and i feel like that's that's another pet peeve of mine I, I want to learn how to be more of an advocate for myself but sometimes you just get so frustrated and you're just like you know whatever so that they were definitely the the, the job that i just they didn't want to work with me at all. So, mm. um, and you I you told up, them like you had a disability that you had. Oh ADS yes, and... I had emails and wow. you know, they knew, and it was just like no, that's they that's didn't not care. We're going. They didn't care. But that they so, also wanted you to clock out for extra breaks that yes. they've been building into the day for you exactly. is them actively seeking to avoid accommodations for your it disability, is. which is. is, if you're, if you're making people stand on the floor, you are, in, you know, leaving out 25% of the population who can't do exactly. that all day. So that's, I mean, that's no. really small-minded thinking. No. And it was another issue, like employees had to go through the back door you know, I have a handicap placard and then I said, well, you know, so I don't have to walk around the building and put extra steps on my body. Can I just walk in the front door? So, you know, you know, I can mitigate you know, my symptoms. And that was an issue too. So it was just, it was a lot of things with T-Mobile. Um, 
But this is, and that's, this is another reason why a lot of people don't pursue legal action too, is like, Mm -hmm. it's so triggering, isn't it? To have to relive those experiences. Yes. Thank you for doing that in this conversation. Oh, no, no, no problem. And, you know, just trying to convince somebody, like, I'm not doing this for any kind of vanity reasons. Mm -hmm. Like, I just, I I really need this. And, you know. And the employers, like, they're not getting enough suits against them. And so they don't see the the need to make these adjustments. And it's like a vicious cycle that continues. Right. And they think it's okay. And they just continue to treat you know, like you said, 25% of the population, you know, in this manner. So yes, it's, it's very, it's very tricky. And like I said, mom was like, we need to do something. And I'm like, mommy, I just, I don't even want to deal with it. Yeah. But um, the employer I'm with now, yes, I'm in education now and I work with kindergartners and um, we're virtual. So right now I'm able to, you know, really, be really great with work-life balance because I'm at home. So right now I have absolutely no complaints and I'm so, so thankful from, for where I am right now in my professionalism. Absolutely. Well, I mean, that goes to show virtual opportunities also make us a lot more comfortable when we're dealing with different levels of physical ability, you know, yes, having absolutely. that kind of flexibility as an employer is super important. So, I mean, aside from these situations where you've been like brazenly ignored by employers or, you know, that doctor who told you black people can't have EDS, have you been in other situations where you've been confronted by people who literally couldn't see that you had a disability because you weren't walking around with a walker or a wheelchair and you had to justify or validate the existence of your diagnosis to them because they simply couldn't see it? What are those situations like for you? Okay, so I know one situation when I was um, in school, I had a professor, and you know, I, every semester I would go through all the um, processes I would need to with disabilities, so my absences would be covered, and you know, things, everything of that nature. And so I had this one professor, and this was a very hard semester for me. I was like, and my pain was on two thousand every day, and I was still trying to make it, and you know, go to class, and you know, do what I need to do to be a successful student. But it was just pr- this particular semester, this one month, I missed like I would say like maybe. 15 days that entire month and so like I said I had my paperwork on file doctor's notes and everything that said you know she needs she gets um days where she can miss class with no penalty and so when I came back to um campus to go talk to the professor and I said you know I'm you know I've missed a few days I just wanted to you know get caught up and you know let me know what your expectation is for me for my assignments and the professor looked at me and said, well, you come in here every day with your nice clothes and your makeup and your hair done. I just, I, I just, I don't like when people try to pull one over on me. And so <laughs> I said, okay, walked out, went to the bathroom, cried, regained mm-hmm. my composure. And I just went back in there and I had a, um, an article that my friend did for me about um, invisible illnesses and a chronic illness. And I just, I sent it to him and I said, when you get a chance, I would like for you to read this article. I said, you, you and a lot of people in society have to stop looking at people and their outside appearances and just assume that because they're not in a wheelchair or you don't have a cane or a walker that you can't be a person with a disability. I said, I I have nothing to gain from missing 15 of your classes and not coming to class and then want to come in here and then try to beg or even, you know, 
for you to think I would lie to you so I can get these assignments made up, you know? And so that was just, that was one instance where I was just like, for you to say that to somebody's mm. face. And yeah. he, I was, you know, and I was a good student, even with everything going on. So I just, I just, I didn't like that at all. And of good course, for you for educating though, for using that as an opportunity for growth, you know? Yes, yes, mm. yes. Because um, other issues, I always have issues using my handicap placard. You know, I would be at the grocery store or even when I was parking on campus, people would come up to me and say, you shouldn't, like, I know one lady, she was like, you need to stop using your grandmother's handicap sticker. <laughs> I'm like, Unbelievable, lady. isn't it? Yeah. Yes. And I mean, just the audacity and the nerve to even go up to somebody and say anything, like, it's just, it's baffling to me that Society is just so unaccepting of invisible disabilities. And so sometimes if I'm in the mood, I'll, you know, take time to, you know, everything is not visible. You know, I'll show them my scars from my multiple surgeries. And then they're sitting there looking, you know, silly in the face. But, you know, I feel like also I shouldn't have to go around and have to overly and constantly explain myself and try to convince people, you know, that, you know, I do have certain limitations. And also, it's nobody's business. This is like the thing that always (laughs) baffles me is why anyone writes that it's their business, but I suppose it's also cultural, right? Like we live in a country where people's bodies are policed. Right. That's true. That's happening. Then I guess it's our right to ask people. Right. Right. Private probing questions. Yes, exactly. Just yeah. so bold <laughs> yeah and then um you know then I get kind of some feedback from my Instagram feed and people will say well you know you look fine and, you know yeah those pictures you see that's maybe like once in a blue moon where I felt okay to get up put some clothes on you know do my makeup and my hair and take a, a nice picture or go out with my friends yeah you see that one day but you don't know you know the 10 days after I take that picture that I'm in bed because I wanted to have one good day out yeah so I do uh deal with that a lot too yeah absolutely so what about you know this idea of prejudice versus privilege especially in the healthcare system we know that you early on had that experience of the doctor who dismissed you for being black uh and I'm wondering if you and I sort of am laughing because it's like the most preposterous thing but I know it happens all the time you know (laughs) but you know you're a woman of color going into the healthcare system seeking assistance for this invisible disability can you see your circumstances being different in certain aspects of your treatment if you presented differently like maybe if you were white if you were male would that have influenced the levels of care and belief that people had in you? Oh, I absolutely do. I um, I just got to the point where I'm able to get pain medication because there was a, um, a doctor that told me people in my community just need drugs to get high. Oh my God. Yes, yes. How do you and, get up when someone throws something like that at you? I mean, I, that is- how, Right, yeah. right. So that was another thing. And I'm just like, okay, I can't even, I'm I'm not a drug seeker. I'm not trying to get these medication to get high. And so, like you said, I really do feel like if I presented differently, I probably would have gotten a diagnosis sooner too. I probably would have got the referral to go to Emory sooner because my pain would have been believed. It was many times where excuse me, I'll go in and it's, oh, you're stressed. Oh, school is stressful. So I know this has, like, you know, you have a lot going on. You know, I can't 
tell you how many times people say you're stressed, you're stressed, you're stressed. Yes, I'm stressed because nobody believes me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But um, I like definitely also I'm believe. stressed because I'm hurting. Like yes, physically. yes, yes. Like I'm in sometimes debilitating pain. You yeah. know what I mean? And so that's an, I really do feel that it would you know it would be more believable. And then another thing, my age, people are like, you're too young to have mm. to um to be in pain. You're too young. You're doctors too young. have said that to you. Yeah, doctors and wow. then you know nurses just you know during the intake. Oh my god, you're just so young, and that really irritates me so much. Yeah. Sometimes when I go pick up my prescriptions, they're saying you're too young to be on all these prescriptions. And like mm. you said, why is it anybody's business? You know, yeah. as to what I have to take and what I'm. Well, you're doing coming to them me. for help. You're like, please help right. me, and they're like, mm, that doesn't exist. It's like, yes, right, right, right. Yeah. And so, like you said, the prejudice versus privilege, we, and we know that there, you know, certain issues within the healthcare community when it comes to women of color and especially, yeah. you know, surrounding pregnancy and things Oof, of that nature. Yeah. So, you know, it's just certain things where I'm like, well, do I even want to have a child? Because, I'm, I, you know, it's scary. It's a big and question. I've already, seen, I've already seen how I could be treated. So, you know, these are really things that I think about. Mm. Well, and that's in healthcare. What happens if you have a son and he's a black boy living in the world? And I mean, like right. That- these are considerations that, that right. would you say that racial and gender inequity in the healthcare system, particularly given your experience is a public health crisis? It is a public health crisis. It yeah. is absolutely 110%, 110%. I don't think I've ever had someone say no to that question. <laughs> I think it is. It is. Mm. And it's sad. It's really unfortunate that, that that's, you know, something that we say yes to, but it's true. Mm. It is yeah. so true. Yeah. So let's talk about your advocacy work, because part of that is about changing what this narrative is. Talk to us about, I mean, obviously you've done small scale advocacy in the sense that like you have taken these opportunities to teach people like that professor Mm -hmm. who didn't believe you. So you're also using social media right now as a platform um, to educate people about EDS. So talk to us about what that looks like for you and your involvement with the EDS society and others. I just, I, I know I've started to be more forward on my social media platforms because I'm a part of um, the EDS, uh, EDS support group in Georgia in the state that I live in. And they are absolutely amazing. And Melissa that bought me in, she's absolutely amazing. And I've met some really great people, but I know that now I step back and look and then the support group, there's not a lot of people that look like me at all. And so sometimes I'm just like, I cannot be the only black girl in America with EDS. I just can't. And so that's why I've started to be a little more forward on my social media platform. And I found a few people or women of color who are suffering with it as well. And we've had a chance to kind of connect and bond and just share that same, you know, journey with each other. But I really, 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 really want to do more. I feel like I'm not doing enough. I feel like I'm not posting enough. Oh, I'm sure by the time this episode goes live, I'm sure you'll have like grown by leaps and bounds because this is, it's baby steps, isn't it? You know, because you're also taking care of your own health. Yes, that's true. That's true. And it's a lot. And sometimes you're not ready for the kickback that you might get when you post mm-hmm. something. Because like we just said, people are bold. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the internet and social media has given rise to trolls. And yes. that can be really tough when you're already dealing with stressors in your day Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so um, 
I don't know if you saw on my page, but I do one of my um, really, really good friends. His name is Brendan Langley, and um, he played for the um, Denver Broncos. Mm -hmm. And so when the NFL had their My Calls, My Cleats, he um, dedicated his cleats to my EDS, and he did the zebra prints. And the I strike. love that. Yeah. Yes. Thank you so much. And I was just, I was just so I was just overjoyed when he did that. And I was just so thankful because I'm like, you signed up and you felt enough for me to do something like that as your mm. friend. So well, it's also a very responsible use of an influence platform. Yes. Yes. Mm. And so that really, that kind of catapulted um, what I wanted to do and bring more awareness, especially when people was like, oh, well, who's your friend? And da, 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 da. And I was like, you know, I don't, I don't want to keep being ashamed of, you know, this EDS and what it's done. You know, I've lost friends, I've lost relationships, but I've also gained, like I said, some really great people in my life. And, you know, I'm just going to keep sharing and just doing what I can to bring awareness. I eventually want to start a YouTube page and just, you know, kind of document my day-to-day -day, um, things and just see where it goes from there. Yeah, that's wonderful. Just to swing back into the healthcare system really quickly as well. I mean, you've given us examples of like things that have worked and things that haven't worked. Would you say like on a systemic level, given the nature of the healthcare system here in the U.S., what works for patients and what really isn't working? What needs to change? We need doctors. I feel doctors that that are not going to just look at somebody and just make a judgment. We need doctors. And I don't want to say we need doctors that care because there are a lot of doctors that care. But that doctor that told me that I couldn't have it because I was black and then the doctor that tried to make it seem like I was a drug seeker, for me, they I, that just made it feel like they didn't care. And so they're just there to do their job and check off their um, check boxes and move on to the next patient. So I really want to say we need people that care. Um, and we need access to health care. I feel like everybody should have affordable access to health care. It shouldn't be a life changing decision to make it a, uh, to go to the doctor or to do uh, physical therapy appointments. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. if it wasn't well, for you my shouldn't, parents, you shouldn't be in debt over something you have absolutely no control over either. No control at all. It's not like we came down. So oh, yes, let me have this chronic illness. And let me yeah. have to have 20 something surgery. We'd all choose it, <laughs> wouldn't we? I mean, honestly. Right, right, right. So, you know, I'm just, I'm thankful that um, I was able to stay on my parents' insurance and, you know, get what I had to have done. And I'm thankful that their employers, you know, offered them affordable insurance plans. Because honestly, if, if that wasn't the case, I don't know where I would be. I just, I truly don't. Because when you have joints hanging on by thread and you need to, you know, go in and get surgery and getting it tighten up it's just it's kind of scary to think about honestly it really yeah. is yeah what about ways it's working are there any pros to the the system as it is right now or is it I mean <laughs> you're allowed to have all cons and no pros right <laughs> this is your experience you know yes that's true um I mean, right now, my, my primary care physician is amazing, and mm -hmm. I, um, she is absolutely phenomenal, and she listens to me, mm -hmm. and that's something I've never had before in a doctor. She listens. I can email her and say, this is the, you know, this is how I'm feeling. This is the symptom. I go in. She say, what's going on? Give me an update, and she, you know, generally shows an interest in making mm -hmm. sure she's doing what she can do to make sure that I'm the best that I can be. So 
yes, it, it's, it's truly a blessing for me. Right so now. when you find the physicians who care and who actually make the time for you and prioritize you, that makes a huge difference. It does. It does. Because ultimately they're the ones that's, you know, going to, you know, kind of be your advocate as well when you, you know, need certain things. Mm -hmm. Especially when it comes to, you know, a PCP or a a general practitioner, when someone's seeing you first for a referral, for example, they become the gatekeepers. So if they're not listening to you. They do. Absolutely. She was actually the doctor that finally gave me the referral to Emory. So that's, you know, yes, that's, um, it's great. It's great. I love Out of her. curiosity. I love you, Dr. Baldwin. I love you, Dr. Baldwin. Dr. Baldwin. <laughs> Out of curiosity, yes. is she a woman of color? She is. She is. And is that, I mean, is it at all surprising to you that it took having a physician who was a woman of color to actually get answers? It is, but then it isn't. Hmm. If that makes any sense at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, because, you know, previously, um, they weren't people who looked like me. And so... I I was excited when I went to that appointment and I saw that, oh my goodness, she looks like me. And I felt so comfortable just bearing it all, laying it all out for her and just bearing everything to her. And she actually listened to me. Mm. And she understood, I presume, inherently a part of your experience, well, parts of your experience that include race and gender that, you know, a white physician or a male physician might not have had an understanding of. Right, absolutely. And I definitely tell her what happened. <laughs> yeah. She was she was she was just she was floored. Yeah. She was absolutely floored. Yeah. Just like I'm sure everybody who hears this will be. Well, but, I mean it's um, dreadful. And I'm glad that you've shared it with us because it's like this is a reality for patients. It is like, and it is. And I feel like sometimes can. sometimes when I'm um you know talking with other people, sometimes they don't get it. Then I mean you don't live it, so I, I guess you can't really get it. But I, it's, it's just my hope that some, you know, someday we can all step outside of ourselves and kind of look at things through other people's point of view in their mm. eyes. Yeah, and Empathy just try and to you know, understand. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So can you give us some tips? I'd love for you to share. Um, You've been on this journey for a while now. You are stepping into more of an advocacy role for others, certainly for yourself. What are the top three things that you would offer to someone as advice if they are going through this invisible chronic illness experience like you are? What are the top three pieces of advice that maybe you would have told your younger self too? Oh, absolutely. So number one is surround your people, surround yourself with people who care, because that's going to be so important. People who care and people who try to understand and be there for you. There have been instances where, you know, like I said, I've lost friendships because, you know, one day I'll be feeling fine. We'll make plans. Yeah, girl, let's go out Friday. Um, This is Monday. Friday comes. I don't feel good. I can't go. I can't do this. I'm sorry. Oh my God, you're canceling plans again. Like really? Like, why can't we just, you know, come to my house, we watch movies, stay inside and, you know, just chill and enjoy each other's company. So I really feel you have to have a solid team of people around you who are going to help you through your good days and your bad days and not make you feel bad about it because Mm -hmm. you shouldn't have, you shouldn't feel bad for what you can't control. 
So I, you know, definitely you have to have a good solid support system. My second thing um, is always, always, always listen to your body. You have to listen to your body, even when it's making you so angry and so upset and making you resent just everything. Listen to your body because there's times where I haven't listened and I pay for it dearly. So, you know, when you're dealing with a chronic illness, you know your limits and you know when you feel yourself getting to your limit. You just have to step back. And I know it's hard to accept it. Trust me. I have, to this day, it's hard to accept those days where I just can't do anything but, you know, just lay down. But I feel like you just have to, you know, listen and be okay with it. And the third thing is I hate, and I struggle with this a lot, don't try to compare yourself or look at what other people are doing. You have to take Mm. your journey. And that's hard because of social media and advertising. Yeah. Oh my goodness. It's so hard because Mm -hmm. I graduated high school in 2013. And like I said, I graduated, you know, back in May, 2020, Mm -hmm. but I have, you know, my friends, they're finishing up master's degrees, you know? And so I'm just like, why it's just taking me so long. And I'm just like, it just, it makes me so upset because I feel like I'm not where I'm supposed to be and you know, everything like that. But like I said, I'm finally, finally getting to the point where I'm I'm okay with Shayla and this is Shayla's walk, mm-hmm. this is Shayla's journey. And it doesn't matter when you finish and nobody's mm-hmm. gonna say, well, how long did it take you, you know, to it get- It took me work? seven years to get my BA, if it makes you feel any better. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, it does. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, you just have to be okay with, with where you are in your journey. and. And that's going to be easier when you have those people around you who accept you and who are there for you and know, well, you know, if you're having a day, no, we don't have to come. We don't have to go out. I'm on my way. What do you want? You know, that type of relationship. So I, I feel like that's just really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. I think those are great tips. What about one other top three list, top three things that give you joy that you're unwilling to compromise on despite what adjustments you may have had to make in your life around your body? Are there three things, be they indulgences or comfort activities when you're having a flare that you turn to when you need to light yourself up? Grey's Anatomy. Love it. <laughs> yes, I can. There's just no compromising on that. I've watched it and rewatched it from season one a hundred times, and I'm going to keep rewatching it a hundred times. Yeah. Good taste. Good taste. Yes, I just, I, I love it. I love it. Um, definitely, um, you said three things. Oh, I dropped, mm. uh, I got so excited. Grey's <laughs> <laughs> Anatomy, one, two, right. and three. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I, I love, I love to travel and, and trips, they take, ooh, they take everything out of me. Like, oh, I, boy, know. I know <laughs> when I get back, I'm going to need at least a week or two to recover. Yeah. Yes. I just, I, for real, but I love to travel and I love, you know, going to different countries and, you know, different places and just exploring and seeing the world. So that's just one thing I'm never going to, to stop, no matter how hard it's going to be <laughs> on my body mm. or how long it might take me to recover. That's just not something I'm going to give up at yeah. all. And uh, what's the third one? I don't want to sound like boring but like just my rest time that's what I was literally thinking I I wonder if rest is on the list yeah it's really important (laughs) yes it is it is I'm I'm never giving that up ever Mm. I'm gonna take I'm that person we could be in the middle of a party if I'm tired and I need to go lay down 
I'm by, peace. Okay. Like, <laughs> I'll see y'all later. <laughs> yeah. I love that. We'd be fine at a party together. I'm very much like that myself. Oh, like, see, I got to go. <laughs> yes. 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 So I love that. Definitely my top three. So what is your ask for listeners today? What can they do to support you and the EDS community and the work that you're doing? I just want people to to not look at what you see on the outside. I want you to just take a, a deeper look into people, try to get to know people on a deeper level, just, you know, not above the surface, scratch the surface a little bit more and just not see people for, for what they physically appear to be. Because I feel like EDS, most of the time it's an invisible disability. And, you know, a lot of people who have it and that I know, we all look completely fine. And so it's, um, it's just people just, you know, daring to take a deeper look. I love that. And what's next in your advocacy work as well as your wellness journey? Uh, this vegan journey. I'm going to try it. I'm going to see what happens. Um, I've been trying new recipes and, you know, new things. And so that's definitely something I'm going to take a little bit more seriously. Although I love hot wings, I think I can find a little, um, <laughs> get the vegan something that can feel Yes, they can fill that void. And like I said, I'm definitely working on um, a YouTube channel um, and, you know, definitely going to be posting more. I have a um, kind of a deeper thing photo shoot coming up soon just to, you know, kind of show people my, my zebra prints and my stripes. Um, so I'm excited about that and just, you know, being the voice for you know, not only the EDS sufferers, but anybody with a chronic illness or, you know, a little black girl who just feels like nobody is listening to her when it comes to her health. I'm, I'm going to be out here like using my voice and my platform to just do the best I can. And if anybody needs to talk to me, you can. I'm here. I'm absolutely I love here. that. Well, it's just so wonderful because you're turning your experience around into inspiration for others. And that's really what feeds us on this show. That's what this is all about, you know? Um, and yes. so wonderful that like we can have these hard things happen to us and we can give back because of them. Right. Absolutely. And again, I appreciate you to allow me to use my voice and to share my experience on your platform. So I'm so happy you're here. <laughs> Are you oh. kidding? So <laughs> can you, you tell everyone where they can find you, Shayla? Okay, so if um, my Instagram is Shayla Simone, S-H-A-Y-L-A-S-Y-M-O-N-E. That's Instagram. That's my main platform. And then um, Twitter is the same, um, Shayla Simone. And then Facebook is Shayla Swint, my last name, S-W-I-N-T. I love that. And is there anything else you'd like to share with everyone before I let you go? No, that's it. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. And I, as I say to everyone who's on the show, you're stuck with me now. Uh, you know, oh, you can't I'm have excited. a conversation like this that's this deep um, yes. and get to know someone this this well without uh, walking away friends. So um, yes. you've got me now and uh, I hope we'll be able to stay you in touch. Me. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. And I love your pink hair. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Yes. So cute. So That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. 
We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.